Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. Today we are going to be doing something a little different. Uh, I am going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And I, I use those three chapters as a unit. To me, it's like one big chapter. And the context of chapters 12 and 14 is chapter 13. So today we're going to look at chapter 13 first, set the context for this important topic of spiritual gifts. We're getting ready to cover 1 Corinthians uh, over the next few days. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And I'm going to do something a little different today. Uh, I'm going to step out of sequence and I'm going to cover chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians first. You know that I'm a really big fan of context. Cultural context, historical context, literary context. I want to set the context. When you when you have a framework that you can put something you're studying into, it helps you understand that subject better. Well, 12 chapters 12 and 14, Paul is going to be studying talking about the use of spiritual gifts uh, in the in the first in the Corinthian church and there's I think there's nine of them but he's gonna be talking about how they're not doing it right and what's the right way to do it and what it should look like uh, it's a very important lesson and this is actually a uh, a subject that has divided the church at times throughout history uh, some people believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as mentioned in Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, uh, are no longer uh, available today to the body of Christ. Some believe they are incredibly available and should be made use of as often as possible. Um, I'll tell you straight up my thoughts on that. I believe the gifts of the Spirit are available to the church today. Having said that, I don't believe that they will be that they are as rampant as some of my uh, uh, Pentecostal brethren would think. Um, the spiritual gifts have a purpose and a place in the body of Christ, and we're going to talk about that. But today, we're going to set the context of it by doing 1 Corinthians 13 first. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 ends up with this statement. He got. He's just finished talking about some of the spiritual gifts, and he says, "And yet, and and he's chewed them out because they're chasing after the showier gifts, the gifts that make the biggest splash, get the biggest headlines, if you will." And he says, "And yet, I will show you the most excellent way." Paul hasn't said that the spiritual gifts are not valuable and that they're not for the church, but he says, "I'm going to show you the most excellent way." So we're going to be doing 1 Corinthians 13 today. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 many times is uh, many times is used at weddings, talking about the love between a man and a woman, and that's that's a legit use of, of, of this chapter. But the context of this chapter says that's not what Paul's talking about, the man love between a man and a wife. He's talking about an agape love. So we're going to find out a little bit about that. So he's, he's just got done talking about the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12. Now he's going to say, uh, now I'm going to show you the most excellent way. 
And that's where we're at, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to a hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. When there, where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Powerful, powerful chapter. Uh, Paul possibly at his most eloquent. Now, it's interesting that he sticks this in the middle of what I call the gifts sandwich. Spiritual gifts in chapter 12, spiritual gifts in chapter 14, love in the middle. And it's interesting how he presents this. At the end of chapter 12, he says, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. And then he talks about love. Now, the love he's talking about here is the agape, agapeo. But it's agape love. It's In fact, it's a word that you hardly ever saw used prior to Paul's usage of it. I think Paul made it up. I don't, I don't know. I just read, heard that rumor once. But having said that, what agape love is, is self-sacrificing love. It's a kind of love that puts the other person's needs ahead of your own. The most powerful example of agape love is what the Christ did for us, what Jesus did for us on the cross. He made our needs preeminent to him and he died in our place. That's self-sacrificial love to the nth degree. There's three kinds of love. Uh, words. There's words that are used to describe three kinds of love. There's eros, that's physical attraction. There's uh, um, phileo, which is friendship, companionship. Uh, the kind of love between two friends. And then there's agape love. The kind of love that you would lay down your life for another person. You put their needs ahead of your own. Agape. So Paul is saying, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have agape, love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He's setting the bar pretty high here. He's saying, if 
Agape love does not, is not operative in your life. Then no matter what gift you use that, that operates in you, it's going to come to nothing. It'll be of little to no value to the body of Christ. Let me go to an extreme here and see if what you think. Um, prophecy is speaking the mind of God into a matter. You see prophets Samuel and David, uh, Elijah, Elisha. Prophets in the Old Testament would speak God's words into whatever situation they're confronted with. They bring God's mind into the equation. What if you were known as a liar, a slanderer? We've seen earlier in 1 Corinthians where Paul was saying that we should not be known or identified by a particular sin in our life. Oh, he's a drunkard. Oh, he's he he's a slanderer. He has uncontrollable rage. When you know when a sin, Paul has already told us that we should not be known by our sin. We should be known by how we live. James says that. You say you have faith. I show you my faith through what I do. So the, all the apostles and the writers of the New Testament are in agreement that uh, our lifestyle as believers has a lot to do with everything. So what if you were known as someone who was a slanderer or someone who had uncontrollable rage, I mean, and, un, and, and you did not control it? You slandered somebody or you, you like to beat people. You like to be mean and ugly to people. And then you stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, and you have a message from God. Who's going to believe that? Who's going to trust the message because they can't trust the bearer of that message? Your words might be true. But if you're someone known for slandering or being brutal or being uh, angry all the time, if you're known as being someone who... Uh, looks like something other than a believer should look. And I'm not talking about physical looks. I'm just talking about living your life, loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. If you're not that kind of a person, you stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord, who's going to listen to you? Nobody. Paul says, if I have the tongues of men and of angels, and I don't have agape love, I'm no better than a clanging cymbal. I'm no better than a resounding gong. And there, there, this reference to resounding gong or cymbal is also referencing to what's what happens in a pagan temple. Uh, they ring gongs and cymbals and, in, the, in their worship service. And he's saying, look, if you speak of the tongue of men and of angels and you don't have this agape love, you know better than the cymbals in that pagan temple over there. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a, if I have a faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. Again, um, you want to give a prophetic word. You have a prophetic word to give, but you are someone who's out of control. You're someone who um, gets drunk. You're someone who slanders. You're someone who's brutal. You're someone who's reflecting uh, the attitude of the world around you rather than the attitude 
of the kingdom you're supposed to be part of and you don't have love, your prophecy will come to nothing. It means nothing. And then he goes on to say, now this is what love looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. You know, it's, uh, again, this is what a life who is living, this is what someone who's living by the mantra, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself, this is what it looks like. Love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, trusts, hopes, and always perseveres. I'm not going to name names, but there are politicians that I can think of that swear to be believers, and yet they're not patient. They're not kind. They boast. They're proud. They dishonor others. They're self-seeking. They're easily angered. They remember all rights and wrongs. You can get a good picture of love if you flip the love's characteristics around. You say, uh, if you say love is patient, love is kind, love isn't impatient. Love isn't mean. Love does not envy. Hmm. Our lifestyle, what we reflect with our life, is of utmost importance in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of man. We have to realize, and we saw this in First Peter, First Second Peter, that we are part of a spiritual diaspora. We are citizens from another kingdom that for a time are living in a kingdom that is not ours. We are aliens in a strange land. And in truth, this land, this place we live, does not like us. And in truth, we are at odds with this world and its standards and what it stands for. And the the chief characteristic that should identify us as believers is what Paul is dealing with here, love. We should be patient. We should be kind. We don't. We shouldn't envy. We shouldn't boast. We shouldn't be proud. We don't dishonor others. In other words, we don't slander them. We don't seek honor for ourselves. We're not easily angered. And we keep no record of wrongs. We don't delight in evil, but we rejoice with the truth. We protect we trust, we always hope, we always persevere. And Paul says, you know, by f- and, and, this, and the Corinthian church was focusing on these spiritual gifts. I mean, I guess it was a big deal to them. The fact that they could have access to all this stuff that the Holy Spirit has to put out there. But Paul tempers it. He says, you know, you have to realize that as powerful as these spiritual gifts make you feel. 
They're at best only temporary. Love never fails, but prophecies will cease. There, we have tongue, gift of tongues today, but they're going to be stilled. We have lots of knowledge, and the Holy Spirit gives us access to lots of knowledge with this gifts of discernment and uh, prophetic words, mm, words of knowledge. He says, but where there's knowledge, it's going to pass away. He says, we're very limited. We only know in part. We only know part of the picture. And we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Now, there've been some, there's been some conjecture. Some of my friends believe that this verse here, when completeness comes, what is part disappears, refers to the Bible. The Bible in its completed canon gives us all we need and we don't need the gifts of the Spirit anymore. I respectfully disagree with that. I don't think that's what's talking about here. I believe it's talking about when Jesus comes back, when all is said and done, when it's all over, the last battle has been fought, the enemy has been defeated. There's a new heaven and a new earth. When that completeness comes, we, don't, we won't need prophecy. We won't need tongues. You see, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the purpose, they give us a glimpse, an ever so short-lived glimpse into what the kingdom of God looks like. Gives us a short glimpse into what the heart of God is really like. It's like for an instant in time, the curtains part and we get to see with clarity something powerful and amazing about the kingdom of God. And then the curtain shuts again. When there's a prophetic word, it only lasts for a short little bit and then it shuts again. When there's a word of knowledge, when there's discernment, it's a very short-lived event. And they're powerful and they're amazing and they're life-changing, yes, but they're temporary. We get them in spits and spots and blips and blops. When we go home to be with our Savior, or should Jesus come back before we do that and settle everything up, then we are going to be living continually in the presence of God and we'll have no needs for glimpses into his glory. That's what the gifts of the Spirit do. They're glimpses of God's power and glory and majesty. And when we are with him, we won't need any of that anymore. That's what Paul is saying here. So you need to know, as cool as these gifts are, as powerful as these gifts are, and in spite of what these gifts make us feel like, they're passing. We're passing through. And there will come a time when we won't need them. When's that time? When completeness comes. When he who is complete, he who is perfect, when Jesus shows up, there will be no need for this. And then Paul says, well, as a child, I talk like a child thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. It's just another way of saying what he just said. When completeness comes. There comes a time when you won't need the fragments from the table anymore. You'll have a full meal in front of you. He's saying when I was a child, I remember when I was a child, I would learn something from my father. Then I learned something else from an uncle, or I learned something else from my brothers, or I'd learned something else from another person. And there, I have all these little bits of knowledge all over the place. And as I get older, these bits of knowledge kind of grow together and they fit together and it becomes a much more solid thing. 
musician, as a musician, this is a good example. When I was growing up, I learned how to read some notes. Uh, then I learned to scale. Then I learned a chord. Then I learned a lick that I could play out of this chord. I learned a lick I could play out of that chord. And I have all these bits and pieces of knowledge of music. And then I go to school and it's like I've been building this brick wall of music knowledge, but there's there's holes in this wall everywhere. And I go to school and I fill in those holes. And now I have a solid wall of music knowledge that I can draw on. When I was a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Then he gives another example of this. He says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully as I'm fully known. The mirrors that they used to use in Paul's time were really polished bronze and they didn't give a true reflection. It, it would be at best a, a, a slightly distorted reflection of you. It wasn't a true picture of you. Another translation says, now we peer through a glass darkly. Uh, the picture is of a, a really messed up window that you can just peek through part of it, right? You can just peek through part of it. And you see part of what's going on in that room. Paul's saying, the time's going to come when that window is going to be removed. We'll see everything. The time's going to come when we won't see need a mirror. We are going to see a true reflection of who we are and what's around us. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. When God takes us home, when God takes us home, we shall have complete and total knowledge of things. We won't need a prophetic word to give us a glimpse of God's heart and mind. We won't need uh, angelic tongues. We won't need uh, word, a discernment, gift of discernment or the gift of knowledge, a word of knowledge. Uh, we won't need that because we will be in the presence of the one who knows all. And it says we're going to know all just like we're known. So the gifts of the Spirit, two things I want you to walk away from as we go back tomorrow to chapter 12 and work our way through it and then later chapter 14. Two things I want you to understand. The gifts of the Spirit are transitory. They're not here forever. There'll come a time we won't need them. That's number one. Number two, if you're not walking in agape love, you negate the value of any of these gifts in the eyes of those people around you that you might be delivering the message to. And keep in mind that an old preacher once told me, God will use the ordinary unless the extraordinary is called for. The gifts of the Spirit, they're not toys that we can pull out of a toy box and dabble with and play with and roll around on the floor with. We're going to find out that the gifts of the Spirit are very important, very necessary, but they are totally at the behest of the Holy Spirit. They are the gifts of the Spirit. They're not the gifts of Paige, not the gifts of Henry, not the gifts of anybody. They're the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to find out the Holy Spirit's in total, complete charge here. 
And as usual, we're going to find out the Corinthian church was messing that up. <clears throat> yeah, God bless them. All right, that's the context to which we're going to be looking at the gifts of the Spirit. Now, I've just told you the lifestyle that should, out of which the gifts of the Spirit should come. And starting tomorrow, we're going to find out the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, about how the Corinthian church was doing it. All right. That should do it for today. Here's my coffee. I'm Paige. And I'm out of here. Bye-bye. <laughs>